This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Here in Toronto, we're all getting older as the percentage of residents 65 plus has edged up. We're also becoming more diverse with 56% of Toronto's population belonging to a racialized group. These are important factors in the snapshot of the city's health delivered this past week by Medical Officer of Health Dr. Eileen Davila. She pointed to a trend of postponed cancer screenings and food insecurity for more people with a direct connection to the COVID pandemic. Libby was joined by the Medical Record Panel on Wednesday to discuss. Dr. Elisa Naiman is a family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station in Toronto. Dr. Malcolm Moore is a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And Dr. Fahad Razak is an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. The first thing to say is that, of course, the whole of society and health system pivot to trying to manage COVID was done with the best of intentions and a lot of good was achieved. But as we then lost access for things like mental health support or um, as there was employment disruptions, you see these spin-out effects, which were quite damaging. And, you know, some of the numbers from the report that I think were really striking is that in the city of Toronto, and I, and I think that this reflects broadly probably what occurred in the province and nationally, not exactly the same numbers, but broadly what happened was that you had a rise in food insecurity, meaning people didn't eat enough or didn't eat high-quality foods because they didn't have the income to support that. So that affected one in five individuals. That's a extraordinarily high number. Um, 40% of people who were renting were spending at least a third of their entire income on rent costs, and more than 7,000 people were experiencing homelessness. Again, staggering numbers. And then if you look at some of the acute medical issues like substance dependence and overdoses, the record year was the last year, so more than 600 opioid overdoses in the city. Um, and and some of the preventative health steps that we take uh, to try and prevent people from getting sick down the road, things like managing their chronic diseases by screening for breast cancer, managing high blood pressure, um, all of those things also um, had reduced rates over the last few years. So you see the immediate impacts uh, from some of the reduced services, and then you worry about the long-term impact because of backlogs and screening and management. Dr. Moore, Dr. Razak was just talking about the high cost of food. That's not changing anytime soon. Just yesterday, we got inflation numbers. Well, the overall inflation rate is down, but food inflation is still very high. And we know there have been studies that show that food uh, can be a big factor in cancer as well as all the other things that he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's pretty good data that uh, factors like socialization, income levels do impact on cancer survival. And um, obviously, the inner city particularly uh, has particular challenges with things like homelessness. I would say on a positive note, uh, there's certainly been a change in the past decade. There's a much greater, I think, uh, emphasis on inner city care and care of the homelessness. You've got hospitals like Unity St. Michael's Hospital that has that as one of its focuses. And I think 
this is really, these are really special populations that you need special programs for. Dr. Naiman, uh, I'm assuming that you practice in basically a, a middle-class area. How do these things impact in your neck of the woods? This is the first time that, you're right, I practice in a, in a middle-income area. There's I have some patients who are very wealthy and some patients who are very poor, and I am often surprised and I'm sad that I have to say that I'm surprised that people will come in and tell me that they're going to the food banks to get food and it would be people who I wouldn't think of and they just cannot, uh, they don't have enough money for food, they're paying rent, they have other expenses and the quality of food in a food bank that they tell me is terrible and if you have chronic medical conditions, especially diabetes, you are getting poor quality food that is not helping you with your management of, of your sugar intake. And a lot of people will tell me that the food is actually, is um, it's gone bad. It's past its due date. It's, so it's become very hard. But even just for the middle class, ever since maybe the spring of 2022, it's the first time that I've ever had people come in and just say they're just so overwhelmed with with the expenses of life. They have, they're, have um, a, there'll be a couple and both, both people will be working. They have children and they just don't know how they can make things work anymore. And this is really the first time that I've experienced people who, who have good jobs with good income that they're concerned about meeting monthly bills. Dr. Elisa Naiman is a family physician and founder and medical director of the Medical Station in Toronto. Dr. Malcolm Moore is a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. And Dr. Fahad Razak is an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsikin for Jane Brown. This week, the controversy over the irregular migrant crossing at Roxham Road in southern Quebec ramped up. Critics have been complaining about it for years, but now Quebec Premier Francois Legault has waded into the debate demanding the Trudeau Liberals send migrants to other provinces and ultimately close the illegal crossing point. With some 39,000 entering the country through irregular crossings, Legault claims that Quebec cannot handle the influx and social services are strained to the limit. The crux of the issue is what many see as a loophole in our safe third-party agreement with the U.S. Asylum seekers who come through regular border points from America can be turned away. Those who cross at points like Roxham Road cannot be turned back. Libby spoke about the issue with Jennifer Elric, Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University, who specializes in immigration policymaking and implementation, and Daniel Ballon, Professor of Political Science at McGill University and Director for the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Well, I think it's just a way for him, I think, not just to uh, make his point uh, outside of of Quebec, but it's really, I think, the main target of uh, this this letter that was published in the uh, Globe and Mail is, is Justin Trudeau, to increase pressure on Justin Trudeau. But there is also, I think, uh, he's writing this letter not just to increase pressure on Trudeau, but also to show to his base and people in Quebec who are concerned about this file that he's doing something about it. So there is also a kind of home audience for this. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, this is a very big topic in Quebec. If you look at the media coverage right now, um, and you have uh, op-eds written about this every day, and also opposition leaders, especially the leader of the Parti Québécois, uh, Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon, 
are making a big fuss over this. And so I think that François Legault feels under pressure to do something about this. And, of course, in our federal system, especially when we deal with immigration, uh, the obvious culprit or target is the federal government, especially in this case, Justin Trudeau. Well, not just the Parti Québécois, it's also uh, the Conservative Party of Canada. They are really jumping on this, uh, Dr. Elric. Um, yes, and uh, I think it's important to clarify that uh, you know the, the opening paragraph of that letter is uh, actually very inaccurate. Um, he starts out saying that uh, asylum seekers are entering Canada because uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invited them. Um, I think it's it's necessary to state clearly that uh, this has nothing to do with the Prime Minister's messaging. Um, asylum seekers are entering Canada because our country is embedded in a geopolitical system that is marked by immense inequalities in income, uh, prevalence of violence and conflict, exposure to climate change. Um, and for a long time, Canada has just been in a very privileged position due to its geographic insulation from refugee-producing countries. We have the Arctic to the north, the oceans to the east and the west, and this long land border with the United States to the south. And the U.S. has helped us maintain that privilege with the Safe Third Country Agreement. And so we're used to being in a position of choosing immigrants and refugees and not being chosen. We're not used to seeing images of people crossing land borders that are much more uh, prevalent in the United States with the Mexican border. And I think with global inequalities growing, this change was inevitable. Um, and regardless of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's messaging, um, I think we're entering a new era of migration management uh, that's going to put us in a position that other countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, European countries and Australia have been in for a while. Dr. Elric, what about, uh, is there any cooperation between Ontario and Quebec on this? Oh, I'm afraid I, I can't answer that question directly. I'm not, um, I'm not, I, I don't have an accurate picture of what, uh, what kinds of discussions are going on between the two provinces on this particular issue. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering because uh, there is the same problem here. So I'm wondering if they're kind of trying to get together on that. I know that uh, uh, Premier Legault and Premier Ford have been, uh, I, I don't know if allied is the right word, but they've been on the same page for a number of things. Um, uh, Daniel Bélan, do you see any kind of uh, perhaps concerted action between the Ontario and Quebec governments? I think the provinces need to, of course, talk about this, but preferably at the same table with the federal government. Uh, but I think bilateral, uh, you know, bilateral relations uh, between provinces are very important. So. And we know that there is a special relationship between Ontario and Quebec. We are neighbors. We are the two biggest provinces uh, in the country. Uh, you know, so I don't know if it would be a bon cop, bad, bad cop episode or what. But I think that uh, certainly there is, I think, a good relationship between uh, Doug Ford and, uh, and François Legault. Uh, but I think they could work together maybe to pressure the federal government to uh, sort things out and work with them on this file. Daniel Ballon, professor of political science at McGill University and director for the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, and Jennifer Elric, associate professor of sociology at McGill University. They were in conversation with Libby on Wednesday. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Coming up after the break, Toronto City Hall goes quiet after John Tory's dramatic and sudden departure as mayor. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was a quiet week at Toronto City Hall, the first week without John Tory as mayor following his resignation after admitting to a relationship with a former staff member. So what's next for the city and Torontonians? Libby asked this of Fightback's Tune Into the Town panel on Thursday. Lorne O'Neill is senior news editor of Block TO. Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. And David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto. Well, every, <laughs> everybody who has an interest in the mayoralty, that's most of the place uh, at City Hall, but they're, they're scheming, planning, trying to figure out what's happening because things had settled in with the after the last election, like, like always. At where the mayor is elected, the council is elected, bureaucracy begins to work with those, those who are there. There's a sort of style and pattern that begins, and now that's been unplugged uh, by uh, uh, by the mayor's going. And so uh, it's a tragedy, obviously, for the mayor and his family, but for the public, it, it, it means there's going to be some reordering of the public business by council, and that's why people are quietly trying to pay attention and figure it out, those who have an interest in it. And, uh, uh, David, do you think it changes priorities in terms of left-right or anything like that? Well, I think it can. I think the election will have, uh, the, the election itself of, of, the, of the new mayor will have uh, an impact on, on the public, and the public will there have, have a, some kind of impact on, uh, on the council. And I think the leadership given by the new mayor will be different. I'm not sure how different, because we don't know who that is yet. But yes, Pat. Patterns will begin to change, and people will try and figure out which issues are, are more important than others. There will be a reordering, of, of perhaps, of, of, uh, of people's understanding of what's really important to them. Housing will still be big and important, of course, and, 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 and other issues that, that were there before, but there may, might be a reordering in terms of their importance in the, in the hierarchy of discussions. Karen? Yeah, so I think, well... You know, John Tory was the target of, of course, the opposition because he was the sitting mayor. And so he was the target for the strong mayor system. He was the target for his budget. He was the target for, you know, anything deemed to be going wrong in the city. Um, now that he's not there, again, who is like, there's no target. Um, Jennifer McKelvey is not the target. She's a reasonable, pragmatic, responsible deputy mayor, but, you know, filling in uh, for the time being. She's a caretaker. So I, I think it will be quiet, uh, as David said, until the next mayor gets elected. That doesn't mean that there isn't scheming and maneuvering and jockeying, but it's not the, there's, because there's no target anymore, um, there's nowhere to really, you know, take out, you know, that position. And no one's going to fill the void in the interim because everybody knows an election's coming. Uh, last week, we had Doug Ford weighing in saying, if you get a, quote, lefty mayor, it'll be a disaster. And then just today, I saw an editorial, uh, obviously, in the star that said, you know, we've tried conservative mayors and it doesn't work. So, Lauren, what do you think? Do you think this changes the political dy- dynamic? I mean, Jennifer McKelvey is a caretaker and she was a strong ally of 
John Tory, which I'm assuming meant she was some kind of uh, red Tory. I mean, the way I see it right now is that we're in some sort of weird mayorless limbo. Um, Deputy Mayor McKelvey is, as Karen said, kind of a caretaker. She's overseeing operations, but she's also expressed that she will not be running for mayor. She doesn't appear to have any aspirations to become the new mayor. So she's just kind of overseeing things. And I think that's kind of why it's been quiet right now. I think that there could definitely be some things bubbling under the surface. Um, Councilors talking amongst themselves, candidates talking amongst themselves. But I, I mean, and I've also understand that it could be until summer before we see the by-election. It could be at least a few months. So I think we're going to be in this kind of awkward place for a bit where McKelvey is kind of just overseeing operations as they've been laid out to run by Tory. And until we get a new mayor elected, there's not going to be that much kind of political squabbling because there's, like Karen said, there's no target right now. Lauren O'Neill is senior news editor of Blog TO. Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. And David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto. And it was just a couple of hours after this conversation, we learned from the city clerk, the Toronto mayoral by-election will be held Monday, June 26th. Once City Council declares the mayor's seat vacant at their meeting March 29th, nominations will open April 3rd and close May 12th. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Komsikin for Jane Brown. We also learned on Thursday a bilateral health funding deal had been reached between the federal Trudeau Liberals and the Ontario Ford PCs. It's among the first of the side deals the federal Liberals are working out, and it features nearly $8.5 billion over 10 years and $776 million right away for so-called shared health care priorities, improving pediatric hospitals, ER rooms, surgery wait times. Libby was joined to discuss what all this means for Ontario residents by NDP health critic Franz Jelena. We knew that it had to come. The sooner it comes, the better, so that we have more time to plan uh, so that we can use this money wisely. So um, it had to come. The sooner, the better. It's done. Uh, You're talking about uh, the money coming. And one of the things that I always marvel at is that, especially with the federal government, they make a big announcement about a lot of money. And then months and months later, we hear from some provincial authority that the money has not arrived. Checks in the mail. Uh, Checks in the mail. (laughs) I I agree. It happens lots at all level of government. <laughs> it happens lots at the provincial level also makes announcement. And then I check with the hospital months later and they still haven't received it. Uh, but for the seven and seven, $776 million, uh, we're expecting this before the end of the year, which is before March 31st. Uh, so um, that it should help. Uh, greatly. Okay. I, and emergency rooms. I mean, we've had this terrible situation where we've seen emergency rooms closing. I don't ever recall that happening before, even though as long as I have been a reporter, crisis and emergency room has been a story, but I don't recall them ever having to close. You're absolutely right. It had happened in some small rural hospitals. They would close for 24 hours, and that was a big story. This year, over 4,000 hours of close in areas like Chelsea, weeks at the time where uh, people did not have access to emergency room. Right, right here, downtown Toronto, uh, emergency rooms have closed, uh, and it's always the same. They do not have uh, sufficient staff 
uh, nurses and physicians mostly, uh, to keep them open. And uh, I have never seen this. I've been in healthcare for since 1980, <laughs> for 43 years. And I have never seen that. And and do you think that that will be able to address it in a, any kind of reasonably timely way? I mean, money is one thing, but then you have to get the person to take the money. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. Right now, a huge part of the crisis in our healthcare system, it's because uh, nurses, physiotherapists, lab techs, uh, respiratory therapists, etc., they feel disrespected by by the province. They have given us like 110% for the last three years of the pandemic. It was hell going to work in a hospital, but they did it every single day, no matter how hard it was. And you will remember Bill 124, where they <laughs> capped their wages at 1%. Um, the court says it was unconstitutional. The Ford government is bringing that to uh, in appeal, spending millions of dollars in legal fees rather than letting nurses bargain. They feel disrespected by the government. They feel like they're not valued. And this is kind of the drop that puts them over. Show them some respect. They're human being. Acknowledge that the last three years were really tough, that they toughed it through, that we're happy for the work that they've done and that we will respect them. But the government is never willing to say that. So money alone is not going to solve uh, the health worker shortages. You started off by being optimistic about this new deal. Uh, is... Uh... Is that the bottom line on it? The um, I would have wished that the uh, federal government would have said, uh, you know, you need to protect the tenants of Medicare in. They did not do that. Uh, but at least uh, more resources will help uh, for sure. Ontario NDP health critic Franz Jelena. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Pat from Toronto called about the move by the Ford government to funnel some public health care in private clinics. We need information. We need audited financial statements from each one of these private clinics that is set up. Because otherwise, we're only talking in generalities. Mind you, in generality, I would ask the question, would you buy a used car from Doug Ford? And I think the answer I certainly would have is no. Because I'm not sure I can trust what the man says. We need some proof of all these things. And therefore, audited financial statements and the the Ontario auditor would be more than willing, I'm sure, to help in this issue. That's what we need. Reliable information. Daryl in Toronto also called about public procedures in private clinics. I go to a dermatology clinic where when a doctor sends in a referral, their message the last few years is, don't phone us for four weeks. 
And then when finally you talk to them, it's months and months till you can get an appointment. The other day, out of curiosity, I phoned in to see about a Botox appointment. I phoned in at 4.15 in the afternoon, and they were willing to give me an appointment for 3.15 the next day. So my concern is that these clinics are going to be using OHIP money, taxpayers' money, to fund the operation for their profit-making stuff. And they're going to do whatever they need to get just the amount of OHIP they need so that they could run crazy with their profit organization. My sense would be uh, to not tax them on the money they make from OHIP and tax them like 80% on their for-profit thing. And I think you'd see a complete turnaround. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There are a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Crystal in Toronto, who called with a first-hand perspective on increased random violence on the TTC. I was a TTC employee for seven years on the front line. I was a bus operator, and then I went down to collectors, and I also ride the TTC frequently, um, commuting to and from work. That 60% increase, I don't know if it includes the assaults on employees as well, because those numbers, in my opinion, should be much higher. There's a lot, even by passengers that don't, that, or that go unreported, because everyone's too afraid. And when it comes to the employees, they're not allowed to speak up in public about the incidences that happened to them without being reprimanded. I was actually assaulted at work for asking someone not to do drugs within the system. And that's what had me leave the TTC because my daughter, who was four or five at the time, she even said to me, Mommy, I don't want you to go to work because that's where the bad people are. And I mean, the assaults happen daily. Like I see it happen with public on my way in. I have a friend who was currently assaulted three times this week inside the station they work at. And the TTC is forcing the collectors inside the subway stations to stand outside of the booths because they want that front-facing customer service. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsican for Jane Brown, and join us again next weekend when we'll round up the Best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.